welcome back to another episode of MCU Need to Know, a podcast dedicated to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm Trey. I'm Jude. How you doing, Trey? I am actually doing really well. I'm excited because uh, it's kind of like a peek behind the curtains. A lot of people don't know this, but when I have been doing these episodes, I have been building like a blanket fort to try and make as like little background noise pick upable as possible. And it was killing my back every episode. I actually spent time and like cleared out a space in my closet. And I'm now recording from my closet without having to sit on the floor. And it's already doing wonders for me. Did you bring a chair into the closet? I did bring a chair. Nice. Yes. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And I will say this though. I am very conscious about every move I make because this is the squeakiest chair that I could find that could fit in this closet. So I'm trying to be as still as possible. <laughs> it's okay. But uh, I, I'll it, take that. I was going to say, I I know uh, behind the curtains, like you listen carefully enough, you're going to hear my my chair squirming around. Um, so yeah, it's you're forgiven. <laughs> the, these are the stories that people look back on like three years into their podcast. They're like, hey, do you remember when we used to record in a closet? <laughs> but uh but yeah how about you how you doing uh doing good i'm excited uh to get rolling on this this episode um okay i was telling you this off podcast and i'm gonna say again i i felt so dejected to start because of that loss i just took on the on the 2k um but i'm good spirits now i'm ready to roll Oh, and of course, this episode is such a lively, spirited episode too. So uh, it's nothing but up from here. <laughs> oh yeah, like this is this is such an upbeat, full of warmth and great feeling. What else do you expect from an episode called "In the Blood"? But before we dive into it, we do have a little bit of housekeeping. Last last week's episode, I did bring up the question about the how gratuitous is the violence in Daredevil. Um, I was able to find the article that that was first brought up to me. It's from the AV Club. It's called Marvel's Daredevil Rabbit in a Snowstorm by Oliver Sava. Mm -hmm. And there's a a whole beginning piece at the beginning. And I want to go ahead and say, one, I already read it wrong, but it still kind of plays into it. Because the the quote that stood out to me was, the violence isn't necessarily gratuitous. The bone-popping, head-crushing brutality of the opening sequence with Fisk's hitman, John Healy, and a bowling alley spotlights the cold, terrifying nature of the man that will become Nelson and Murdoch's client. It kind of goes on. And then it just, the, the kind of crux of its point is, there's a point to the violence, but does it have to be so graphic? There's definitely an oh shit factor in the grotesque moments, but there's little to admire about them. I was just going to say, like, I... I you sent it to me and I read it and I thought about it's hard to think about those two separate right um when you start talking about what is gratuitous and what is graphic um because like I I thought about like a criminal minds episode and that can be very graphic for just broadcast television you know and if, if you've ever seen it it can it can get very graphic mm-hmm. uh for broadcast television um, but it's the show you expect that, right? And so in, in that way, I don't know if you call it necessarily gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here in the Daredevil show, as what you just read and kind of pointing out and pushing the characters, I don't know if I want to go to gratuitous. It, to kind of play off that, it if I'm understanding correctly, Maybe it's only seen as gratuitous if we're viewing it in the spectrum of the other Marvel shows that we've watched up to this point. And if it's something we've grown to expect with this, since it is a different take, 
then because that's kind of the norm for this show, it's not necessarily overdone, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, okay, so you get the 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 bone snap, you get the sound, he bashes the guy's head in with a skull, the gruesome suicide impaling mm-hmm. Uh, I think I even mentioned in the last podcast, they, they flip, you know, they get that camera shot where it flips around and you see close up on the face, blood dripping out of the nose. At the time of first watch when it first came out, I don't remember thinking, man, this is, this is too much. Yeah. Right. It, it, it just really had the right amount of, oh crap kind of mm-hmm. factor. But I, I don't ever remember watching it and thinking, man, this is just pushing it too far. I'm not someone who's normally uh, sensitive to this kind of stuff. Like, I, kind of like you, I don't remember it ever sticking out to me uh, through my first watch. But I thought it was an interesting thing to kind of like step back and 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 think about here in this second rewatch. I do think it does kind of linger on it sometimes, like you said, with that scene of him like hanging. And maybe one of the scenes we'll get into in this new episode we're about to discuss. But I don't think it's in an off-putting way. Right. Well... I, I guess this is also something maybe to keep in the back of our mind as we go through the episodes and to see, are there, it, does that stand out to us at all? You know, mm-hmm. and like, oh, this kind of, you were showing it just for the sake of showing it. I know there's some other Netflix Marvel shows that might qualify for the gratuitous more so than what we've seen so far, which you haven't watched this show yet. And so I'm going to be in I'm even being hesitant of naming it just because I want you to watch it. I have a guess. Yeah, and I just, I want you to watch it and I don't want to put that in your mind when you do go watch it. And your your guess is probably right. What is it? Punisher? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, uh, Punisher had one of those things where it was kind of like, it was a very unfortunate time when it was released. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, I do believe there was a lot of gun violence going on at the release and that conversation kind of, um, got got paired with the release of the Punisher, so that's kind of like where it stood out to me. But I personally haven't seen the show, so I don't really have uh, informed thoughts one way or the other. Yeah, coming coming soon to an MCU new MCU need to know podcast. That'll be interesting once we get there. Uh, maybe not coming soon, but but it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm definitely down to continue going through these Netflix shows. But uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into uh, our topic of the episode, which will be Daredevil Season 1, Episode 4, In the Blood. So immediately we are opened up in a prison. It's a flashback set eight years ago where we're kind of getting more information about the two Russian brothers, Anatoly and Vladimir. Uh, We find out about them and then it jump cuts to present day where one of the brothers, Anatoly, is fleeing for his life as Daredevil looms overhead watching them from a window. Right. Uh, Two notes I had on the scene. A, I just, the flashback again, this one I think served its purpose. Um, and showing how close they were and how tough they need to be to get through that situation. I mean, the guy broke off a rib from a dead body, um, you know, to show how tough they are. Uh, I think what's important also moving forward is you get that of Vladimir and Anatoly. Vladimir is the alpha between the two brothers. Uh, and I clearly in my notes, like Daredevil standing in that window, he's thrown somebody out of the window and, while the camera lingers on him, I write, you know, did this answer the no death, no killing question? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like the same thing I, I put, like, seriously, Matt does not care about the damage he's doing to people. 
Right. Oh, it, it certainly seems like he doesn't. But yeah, I mean, to, to play off what you were saying about getting to know the brothers, I mean, it, it, it it's kind of, uh, I believe it was last episode where you talked about um, developing your characters and your villains. The fact that this this opener is taking the time to really establish the relationship of the brothers and the things they went through, um, it only makes what plays out throughout the rest of the episode so much more foreboding, um, especially given the way that last scene ends. Everything that you feel in that moment is set in stone from this beginning scene where we get to just to learn how they uh, operate as brothers. Yes. And I, when we get to their next scene, I love, that was probably my favorite scene of the whole episode and just how that was directed and, and done. So uh, from there we get our title sequence. And then when we get back from there, it is a, another scene featuring Claire and Matt, uh, Claire is tending to Matt's wounds, which we had some off-screen, off-podcast jokes about what we could rename this podcast. I think we might be able to rename it Tending to Wounds, the podcast. It seems like that's a lot of what these scenes are. Yes, very much. Amateur, <laughs> well, it's like amateur medical hour, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. ER Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> well, I mean, Claire is a nurse, so <laughs> she knows what she's doing. But. That's true. So anyway, uh, Matt and Claire are, are you know, uh, Claire's tending to Matt's wounds. They have some kind of flirty back and forth before Matt offers up a phone. Uh, that way he establishes that he can call before he comes uh, over next time. Yeah. Did you get that sense of, to me, I got the sense of uh, disappointment in Claire when the phone was for let's say business visits. Did you get that sense out of that scene between her or from her? Uh, to me, the way that I read the scene is that they were both kind of like getting into the moment of flirting back and forth. And then the bubble gets popped when, cause she, she has that, like that playful line was like, Oh, you shouldn't have because he handed her the phone and he laughs, pauses and he goes, I didn't. And it's, so it's like, they had this nice road, like back and forth. And then the reality comes crashing in. He's like, no, this is what it's actually for. So I, I, I guess I took it as both of them were kind of coming back down to earth. Okay, okay. Um, and then this scene, while well, quick, it did give us a one tidbit on Fisk. Um, just that line right there at the end where he's like, I could find no records on Fisk, internet and whatever. And you would think as a lawyer, he probably has access to some pretty powerful search engines. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows just how uh, neatly kept uh, Wilson Fisk is. Um regarding his uh, whereabouts and criminal doings. You know, we, we talked about it in the beginning, how uh, Matt is definitely very haphazard with the way that he's treating these these villains. I, I wrote down the question, is this the moment that Matt starts to develop his no-death rule? Um, Claire is kind of like detailing what has happened to the the Russian criminal that they tortured in episode two. And she's mentioning like, oh, you know, he's in a coma um, how do you feel? And Matt says, I'll live. And it's a very cool, uh, a very cold remark, given the fact that somebody is is in a coma because of his actions. With the, you know, I'll live line, uh, there was a moment of hesitation there. Um, and so to play off of what you were saying, it seems like maybe, yes, that is where the seeds are starting to be planted. Um, or at least that internal conflict is now external through that, through Claire's voice. Very much so. Uh, and to, to play off that, I really like in this scene and in a later scene, Claire is really pushing Matt forward with what his entire plan is. 
because she even has kind of like that mocking. Um, so, you know, what's your plan? Are you going to go out there and beat people up until you finally get what you're looking for? And it's just kind of a really grounding conversation that I don't think Matt has truly had up until this point. Right. And actually thought through, you know, his end game. Mm-hmm. pun intended. <laughs> and I mean, regarding that, I mean, what's born out of this scene is another one of the lines that I like to kind of keep as our through line throughout the episode. Matt responds to that question with, you know, apply enough pressure and someone will break. And I like the way that that kind of plays out throughout the remainder of this episode. Right. With that, I think the next scene we get is we're back with the Russians. Is that correct? That is very much so correct. So basically, Wesley shows up and they're not happy. Uh, Fisk isn't happy. Um, although at this point, we're still, Wesley's still doing the, um, my employer. Uh, but through the scene, they mentioned Madame Gao, Nobu. Um, and essentially, it's the Russians' inability to handle Daredevil, uh, which is kind of putting a, a damper on all these criminal activities. Yeah, definitely a kink has been thrown in their plan. I think the thing I love so much about this scene is, you know, for all the talking that we've been doing about the Murdochs, like, you know, we can take a hit, but we always get back up. I, I wrote this line down. I I think I got it right. But Wesley essentially tells the Russians, I know how much your people love extolling how much pain they can endure, but maybe next time try ducking. The fact that that comes from Wesley is like such a great refutation of everything we've been learning about Daredevil. And it's just I I love that it comes from him. Yes. Well, and also to me, it just showed Wesley's I I mean, he's on their turf and making fun of them. Right. He has no fear of them. I mean, he's in there alone and like to not only to give this bad news, but basically threaten to be like, hey, we're, we're very close to taking over your operations and remaining as suave and as intimidating as he is, I like oh, I said, yeah. I'm I'm willing to join on this Wesley fan club with you. Right. Well, he has also another line in there where, you know, I, I mentioned Madame Gao and Nobu are not pleased, and the Russians are like we haven't heard of this, and he's like, well, that's because we're talking behind your back. <laughs> uh, wow i do like that we get another uh mcu proper uh reference in in here uh you know as they're kind of going back and forth being like like hey this is happening because this man in the black mask is giving us trouble uh wesley does the you know i mean if he had an iron suit or a magic hammer maybe that would explain why you keep getting your asses handed to you i thought that was a the fun little uh throw up to the mcu yeah yeah oh yeah now one of the things i love because we mentioned this this character development of vladimir and anatoly um what this scene what i loved about it it was all about them not being on the same page because anatoly was right away you know tell your employer we're grateful and vladimir shoots him a look right but even the blocking itself which was really fantastic because what you had is you had vladimir between anatoly and wesley Right. And you saw Anatoly over Vladimir's shoulder. So you had essentially, you know, Anatoly wanting to make the deal from the beginning and physically how it was directed, how it was blocked. You had Vladimir in between him and Wesley during that whole exchange, which I thought was just a brilliant piece of directing and blocking throughout that whole scene. Especially because as the scene prior, we got such a, a deep look at their history where we saw how they they came together to kind of like get over their their hardships in the prison and then to see them starting to split here 
you know, things are starting to kind of get tightly wound and it's not looking good for the way it ultimately plays out. And I think, you know, we can kind of put like a, a defining moment between their conflict after Wesley leaves and Anatoly mentions like he doesn't mention Fisk by name and Vladimir insists on saying his name. And he has that line of, of like, you know why he doesn't like saying your name? It's because it would betray the idea that he's just a man. And I really like that um, that exchange there, too. You, you see their their conflict kind of verbally stated. Right. And even leading up to that exchange, what I find interesting is as you're getting to that point and Vladimir is is having those lines about saying Fisk and, and Vladimir is using Fisk's name, right? The blocking is actually shifted where Anatoly is now like this peacekeeper position between Wesley and Vladimir. Uh, and, and almost, you know, kind of as a buffer in that moment. And then I thought Wesley had a really cool reaction with his eyes where you could tell like they got to Wesley right there, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then the way they ended that scene where you had Wes, Vladimir and Anatoly facing towards camera and Wesley walking away as he's explaining that, but they still had Wesley between them as he was walking away. So you can clearly see that, that there was still a divide between them and, and Wesley got to them. Everybody kind of like taking their shots. Oh yeah. Now I had a question. Did this give us some insight because once on Wesley and in, in the previous episode, because once Wesley um, got Vladimir to react, you know, in, in such a way, Wesley kind of flashed this smirk and it made me wonder, okay, was that flex back in Matt and Foggy's office intentional? Like, like Wesley enjoys getting people to, to get wound up or to react. You know, did mm-hmm. you do you did you see Wesley as as that kind of person, or do you think maybe this answers that question from two episodes ago? Well, I was gonna say I, I like the way that you brought up that point about how you could see it got to Wesley. Um, I was gonna say, does this kind of like give evidence to him uh, slipping in that scene with uh, Foggy and Matt? But it does seem like it's a part of his tool bag to just throw out those lines that are meant to unnerve the person around them. Um, and I think maybe it's a case where with Matt and Foggy, we saw it was effective. And then with here, even though it was effective, he took some, some disturbance as well by finding out that they knew Fisk's name. Right. Kind of backfired a little bit, maybe. It's a, it's a, it's a point to keep tabs on as we move forward and and analyzing the way that Wesley ticks. It's the Wesley podcast. Okay. We're going to do our own spinoff. It's going to be a podcast within a podcast. (laughs) The Wesley files. (laughs) Um, well, as you say, one last thing before we move on, Vladimir says, you know, if Fisk, you know, wants a pound of flesh, he can come carve it himself. And I noted down, okay, foreshadowing. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right here. <laughs> I forgot. I do have one more note. Uh, I do like that they make the comparison because uh, playing off that line again, it would portray the idea that he's just a man. And then I believe Anatoly replies, so is the man in the mask. We know everything's kind of building up towards this daredevil Fisk confrontation. I like that they're comparing them to here. Like they're both these these men that represent an idea larger than themselves. Thought that was neat. Right. No, that that's a good catch right there. But after that, after the business with Wesley and the Russians are done, we get a new scene featuring Karen and Ben. They are in a diner and they are seated discussing 
uh, Union allied. And, you know, Ben is very apprehensive and kind of poking holes in Karen's case and basically giving her every reason not to chase down this lead. Right. And I found it interesting. You made a note in the last podcast where the last interaction we had between Ben and Karen in his office, Ben had this hopeful look uh, that he could carry on this Union allied story. Uh, and this seems like an interesting turn here, at least in the initial right here in the scene, the way I read it, it's, mm-hmm. it, I felt like, like he had moved on. He was done. Yep. He wasn't going to look at it. So for me, I think the thing that I come away with is that, you know, obviously we know he's someone that takes pride in reporting on real stories and, you know, how much that means to him. And so, like you said, it's interesting that when this story does come to him, despite it being what he wants, he's still trying to take that realist approach. As you mentioned last uh, week, you know, he has these responsibilities. He has to keep his job so that he can take care of his wife. And so it almost feels like he's arguing against himself via Claire, uh, via Karen. Um, and so I, I wrote down the question, do you think that Ben was swayed in this conversation or was he always trying to shield Karen from getting involved? In, in the moment, I, I feel like he wasn't interested. And mm-hmm. the way I read this scene and he was persuaded maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and honestly, the only reason why I say, and he was persuaded is because we know or, you know, he, he shows up later in another scene and he's, and he's pursuing it. Otherwise this scene alone, um, I think I even wrote my note here, right? She, we find something out about Karen, you know, she has a shady past and then she brings up, well, I've researched into you, I've read your old stories. And his response to me was believable that he had moved on, especially if I take into account the conflict of, from the previous episode, you know, do I write the the hard hitting news piece that doesn't sell or do I write the piece that the fluff piece that does sell and, and knowing what's going on with his wife. And it, to me, it was a believable that he moved on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, mentally, emotionally from doing that kind of work and accepted doing fluff pieces. Yeah. And, and, and he has like this, you could feel how tired he is. Like, I think maybe there is a part of him that wants to do it. But like you said, taking into account all of his responsibilities, I think he does realize that, um, you know, it's something that he does need to move on from. Because I think the line that you're referring to is when Karen pushes back, she's like, you know, you basically took down the Italian mob when I was still in diapers. Whatever happened to that reporter, Mr. Urich? And he says he got old and a whole hell of a lot less stupid. And I thought that was... a. a pretty good uh punctuation on that entire scene yeah and that's and that's why i say it was it's believable that he had he he's not taking it up and that's how yeah. i read it i one more question because i was a little confused on this um because they're kind of like pushing back and forth and he goes i did some in, investigation into your past activities what activities was he referring to do we know i know okay <laughs> <laughs> oh man um yeah i, I he, guess this is something that I've forgotten? No, uh, it's it's not something you've forgotten. Uh, they don't actually explore her past in this um, season. Uh, eventually, they do get to exploring Karen's past, and they're pulling from, God, I want to say, the Born Again storyline. Okay. Uh, or And it's not directly, but the idea of a shady past. And the majority of this is pulled from that storyline, like piecemeal. You see, get some of it here. Uh, then you get in any in, in di- the different seasons, um, and a lot of the that Frank Miller run, 
But mm-hmm. so yeah, like they brought that up, but they don't. I don't think they actually explore it until later seasons. Okay, all right. Well, then I will put a pin on this, and something we can come back to as I get caught up. After Ben and Karen have their discussion at the diner, our next scene involves the Russian brothers arriving at a hospital where we get to see the results of Matt's torture of the Russian criminal on the rooftops. And the Russian brothers uh, awaken him to get information out of him, and they are able to pull out enough information to find Claire's old apartment, where unfortunately they also find Santino. Right. So I, I do have one question. So they reconcile, you know, as I mentioned, they were they were not on the same page. They had a moment mm-hmm. of like, okay, we want to be on, they, they get on the same page, you know, over, over the body that's in a coma. And I had a note and I wanted to ask you like, who, how responsible is daredevil for this death? Cause I read it as he died and they wake him up from the coma and on his dying breath, they give up the names. So if he did die, yes, he, they brought him out of the coma, but those injuries were from daredevil, you know? Most definitely. So, so I don't know. What do you think? How much of that is on him? I mean, because I've I've been kind of keeping tabs on this throughout these episodes. Like it, it is it's baffling to me how much little care Matt has shown to the people that he's taking down. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the episode where we're seeing that as he's starting to kind of define what his end game is. And I think even if it's not stated. Uh, in the text i think this is where he is getting that no death rule and i'm i think i would say yeah he's pretty damn responsible for for getting this guy in in the hospital bed even though it was the russians who woke him up matt was the one who put him there in the first place right i'd I'd have to agree with you on that because we i mean we looked at that scene pretty well i feel uh in in terms of just wow he just threw that guy over the edge and we talked about whether or not the line was, you know, going for the cheap laugh or did he really not care? And I think we both concluded that he didn't care, you know. Yeah. And I think it, I just this kind of just popped up in my head. What was the what did he say in that rooftop scene? He says he'll live. And we revisit that that same person again at the beginning of this episode. And his same response is I'll live. So it's shifting from like he's starting to take personal responsibility for it, I think. Even though it's kind of a coy response, I think you can kind of dig into the subtext and realize that Matt is, it's starting to weigh on Matt for sure. Right. He's making moves in in that direction for sure. The only other thing I wanted to point out, because I found it unintentionally hilarious, or maybe it was intentional. I don't know that that, you can, you can weigh in on this. I do find it funny that when Vladimir and Anatoly arrive at the hospital, uh, they're carrying balloons and flowers, but there is not a single body language in them that sound, seems like they're remorseful they're they're purely on business and everything else is just props well it's it's a nice it was a nice touch i think to at least on their part to like try to make it look like they're visiting and cared <laughs> i don't i don't know if you saw them walking through with the bruised faces and beat up as they were <laughs> that that you would look at it and think oh how sweet they're visiting somewhere <laughs> And I like I have I do have one more note because uh, obviously the scene ends where the Russian henchmen get to Claire's old apartment and they find Santino. Man, Santino definitely wins the award for being in the wrong place at the wrong times multiple times this season. <laughs> that poor kid. <laughs> that he's he after this I'm sure he's going to be an introvert or an antisocial. He's yeah he's like you know what I'm just going to stay home I don't want to go out anymore. <laughs> 
After we get the scene with the Russian henchman finding Santino, we find ourselves back with Wesley and Fisk as they are riding together in a vehicle. They're basically just giving a rundown of their day and how things are going with the Russian brothers as well as the man in the black mask. When they do arrive at their location, Wesley wants to tag along with Fisk, but Fisk insists that he visits alone because as we find out, they have returned to the art exhibit to uh, continue his conversation with the woman in the art gallery. So at the beginning of this scene, you know, there's a bit of business first in in the car where Wesley has clearly picked up on Vladimir and Anatoly not being on the same page and suggest to Fisk uh, we should use Anatoly uh, to, to make some sort of deal. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it just goes to show the kind of right hand man that Wesley is. Um, he's, as we've said multiple times, I mean, he's very um, he's very good at what he does. And I think the thing that I like the most out of this scene is it, it may seem trivial, but I like that this is the first time, If correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the first time that we've seen Wesley without his glasses as he's talking to Fisk. I like the kind of imagery that this depicts that they have that kind of casual relationship where this is like, you know, it's at the end of their day, they're kind of relaxing a little bit while just tuning up these fine little details for what they need to do next. Felt very casual. The casualness is a nice catch because I just mentioned how they did a piece of business, but you see that it's not all business for them. And in a sense that that relationship uh, has some deeper meaning. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's a level of trust. To, well, yeah. Cause like Fisk gets out to go to the end of the gallery, art gallery. And Wesley was like, sir, you know, and, and wants to do it for him. Uh, and so, and so you see that, that level of trust, you see that Wesley, you get the sense that Wesley truly cares for Fisk. It's not just a job. Which again, I know I keep saying this. I can't remember exactly how things play out with Wesley, but these slow buildups are making me really excited to see how his story continues on. Yeah, I remember. So (laughs) (laughs) the next, I guess the second half of the scene really involves, uh, Fisk getting to know the woman. We, we, I believe we learned her name is Vanessa. And Fisk is attempting to ask her out on a date. Man, I, I have gone back and forth so many times on my notes about how I feel about Fisk in this episode. I, I, he openly admits that this isn't something that he does often, but it almost feels clumsy. But I think it's intended for effect, given how things are going to play out by the end. I just don't ultimately know how where I land on it. Right. Well, I, I think it was, I think, I think the clumsiness was intentional because I mean, you will notice Wesley was going to get out and go in and Fisk wanted to do it himself. And she had that line. You don't do this often. No, I don't. Um, And so even the dialogue plays into that. So I think you're right Mm -hmm. to catch on that. We noted at the end of the, the episode, Rabbit in a Snowstorm, his only line was makes me feel alone, right? This sense of vulnerability. And we have such a powerful, expectation wise such a powerful businessman who's pulling all these strings and yet he's we still see him in a vulnerable and shy awkward position mm-hmm. uh, and so in that way i think it's just really good character building i recognize that it definitely is for effect it's just i don't know i, I i'll have i think i have more to touch on later in some of their dating scenes but we'll i guess we can get to that when we get to it well and and if that's the thing they go for they did well because i have a note that all it says is Fisk gets a date, you know, like you, you feel like you're watching, 
you know, as as a teacher, it's like watching one of my students bumble through trying to get a date and then like, oh, you're so proud of them. You, you got a date. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, it's very it's very funny that you point that out, because I think one of the uh, it's in a later scene. But I think one of the notes that I wrote was like, this feels very high school to me, which, again, for effect, But yeah. I, I like your perspective. Like you almost feel proud for them because you know, this isn't something that happens often. <laughs> oh, man. So after Fisk gets his date, we do get ourselves a new scene with Claire where we see her taking care of her friend's cat. It's a very chilling scene where she hears something outside and after checking it, realizing that it's just a neighbor walking by, but unbeknownst to her, we, the viewer see that there is somebody at our window and it's this looming sense of dread. They interject that scene with Matt and Foggy who are tending to their business and they're kind of like going over their life choices about starting their own practice. And the scene ends with Matt getting a very harrowing call from Claire, realizing that there was somebody outside her window. Right. And from that, he springs into action and does his fancy blind man parkouring um, and, you know, doesn't get there in time. Uh, Okay, let me go back. You mentioned I thought that was a really well done sequence where they set up that expectations of you expected the Russians outside the door. You didn't get it. And they went back to that restraint in that moment where they give you the menacing moment outside the window, but they don't pay it off, you know, which Mm -hmm. is in a horror kind of genre. Like that's some of the scariest ways to do it. Right. Cause it's all about the buildup and the catharsis and the fact that they're delaying the catharsis of the scene. It just really amplifies the effect of what they're doing. Cause I mean, my only note for the, the specific scene with Claire in the apartment with the cat, this genuinely freaked me out the way I don't know what it was, but the way that the person outside the window was moving just felt so unnatural and it, it, it genuinely creeped me out. Right. And you get it. You kind of the way they did the sequence, you kind of get a sense of relief, right? Cause Matt gets the phone call and He's not panicked right away. He he says, hold on. He finishes a conversation with Foggy. Foggy makes that crack about, oh, can you afford a phone? It's a phone just for your women now. And then when he comes back, Claire, what's wrong? Then we get that quick cut back to her apartment and she's scrambling for her phone. And it's a really quick moment. You don't see a lot of the of her being taken. And then Matt, like I said, you know, springs into action. So, like, it was really well done in that, like, we're going to set you up, not going to give it to you, even give you the phone call and kind of let it linger a little bit before we hit you with that, oh, something's going down. I do want to play off what you said about Matt and his parkour sequence. Maybe you can enlighten me a little bit on this, but as far as at least my read and my only knowledge of Daredevil being through the show, the poison that Matt was infected with as a kid only damage his sight and enhance his other senses, right? Or did he get any uh, other sort of enhanced abilities from that? Because the, the parkour, I mean, that's some incredible skill that he's displaying. Right. No, he has an extreme, he is, he is extremely athletic. Um, so it honestly, it depends on what comic run you're looking at. If you're looking at like originally, you do have some. If I if I remember right, if you look at the original creation of Daredevil, you do get some sense, or I think they do have some kind of heightened ability in terms of like 
naturally gifted, not mutant or any, you know, anything like that. Or, but it, it was, he are like, he would have had some of these things, even if he wasn't blind necessarily. I is the, is if I remember right, the thought, mm-hmm. um, whereas when I keep bringing Frank Miller, when they kind of did a redo of this, uh, and, and like, there was a, a big change, right? Like in the original creation of this, Matt's dad didn't die till he was older, right? Like in college, older, you know, whereas mm-hmm. when they redid it with the Frank Miller run, um, and you're looking at, um, the man without fear run, Matt's dad was, I believe, abusive and an alcoholic. Oh, wow. And right. And so you, and like it was, it was much darker. Um, and so you get, you know, somebody will be introduced later to in a couple of episodes where that he like takes Matt and trains Matt and how to use these senses. So it's a mix of both, but I, I think that there, this show is following more of that run of he was taught what to do with these senses, you know, you, you know, we listen, you and I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's one podcast, uh, from NPR invisibilia and they're like season one, episode two or three is, uh, talks about the Batman and it talks about someone who's blind and uses echolocation, um, to, to basically for him to see in that episode, it talked about how, Yes, even though I was blind, I had to learn how to use these senses. And with enough time, I was able to hone these things. And I think that's the direction they're taking with this. Now, mm-hmm. Matt also is just naturally athletically gifted, which yeah. helps. I mean, because, I mean, the, the note I was going with is the fact that he's so agile and adept at combat is just a testament to how cool the character he is. If that's kind of more self-trained versus gifted from the accident. Well, speaking of that athleticism, there were there's a some issues where, like, he even dressed up as Spider Man and pretended oh, to wow. be Spider Man for Peter Parker and vice versa, you know. And so you have to have a pretty like to not have those spider powers. You have to have a pretty good athletic ability to do that. No joke, and that's actually really cool to know because when you were talking about like how he didn't necessarily become a mutant. I was going to say it's kind of Peter Parker-esque, the, the natural reflexes that were enhanced from that. So that's cool to know that there's a run where he, you know, took over for Spider-Man for a little bit. Yeah. The only other note that I really have for this is I really do enjoy that the conversation that Matt and Foggy are having really mirrors one that we're going to have later with Claire and Matt. Foggy kind of embodies so perfectly that feeling of not knowing if you're doing the right thing and how not knowing only exasperates that feeling. Matt reassuring that they're still making a difference as defending the, the little people and being, you know, um, good lawyers. It, it it helps to kind of keep this in check for later on s- scenes down the road. Because it, it's, it's the fact that Matt's defending Foggy's feelings kind of educates the audience that despite the insecurity, it's still worth pursuing the chance to make a difference. Yes, I think that's a good way to look at their interaction. And the only thing I was going to say as well, my last note, watching it now versus when it came out, I couldn't help but think of just that trope, women in refrigerators. Uh, that comic trope of like how women are just used as a plot point to mm-hmm. push a male character storyline. Um, and I admit, I'll have to admit, like watching that now... I don't know if I want to go so far as to say it turned me off to the episode the rest of the way, but it oh. did really 
change how I looked at the the Matt and Claire storyline for the rest of this episode. To play off what you said about how the trope of, of using women to just propel the story forward, if kind of peeking ahead, I mean, we don't really glean too, too much off of the rest of Claire and Matt's story. And it is kind of an unfortunate reliance on that trope in this episode. Right. Especially, you know, I mean, the next scene is Karen at the auction in you know, she shows up to the auction because she decided she's pushing forward to do this research on Union Allied. And what you get with that, her seemingly walking away from Ben, thinking like her, this isn't going to happen and taking her own, is that sense of agency, right? She's driving the action, um, which was which is interesting to see that you actually have both the trope and then you play right into the other where you have a female character who has some sense of agency and, and I mean, yeah, there's a sense of she's reacting right because of, of the beginning and everything that she's been through, but she's not letting it go. Right. Like she's making the choice to pursue this. Even if she, I mean, even if she doesn't have experience in a situation like this, that's such a cool character defining moment that she's still out there still trying to make leads. I mean, we can even look down to the single fact, like look at what she was doing. Her way of, of gathering notes was just drawing sketches. Like, I don't think she necessarily knew what she was looking for. She just wanted to know that she had uh, a record of the people that she was seeing there. It, it, yeah. it shows how new she is to this, but still willing to kind of go off into the deep end. Oh yeah. Like, well, and that we've been talking this whole theme of justice, right? Um, Matt, two versions of justice and this conflict, Ben, Eric, and this um, idealist version of justice. Um, and, and she's clearly going to be paired well with Ben because this, no, this has to be, these people have to face justice. This can't be let go. The, the pairing with Ben is so great because I, I always like that someone taking someone under their wing to kind of train them to do the thing that they really want to do. And we're seeing that with Ben and Karen and we're getting it in a way that the way they kind of like stage the scene, you know, Ben is pointing out all these people he's suspicious of, but despite the fact that he doesn't have concrete information on him, he's still savvy enough to know what to look for and how to remain anonymous and him trying to like impart that information on the Karen was cool. Oh yeah. And you get the sense that he's done this before because he was able to say, okay, you need to stay around bit of, bit a few things when on the you know win a small lot uh just to help her not stand out uh and mm -hmm. not get caught uh you know so to have that know-how and be able to so quickly pass it on uh it was a nice nice interaction between them two yeah and also we get to see ben basically be batman which is amazing yes i <laughs> my note vanishes like batman <laughs> in, fa in fact i even paused the episode to make sure i didn't i wrote that down that is the first note that i took <laughs> ben is basically batman i think we're finding out wesley and ben i might be our two favorite characters in this show yes yes <laughs> so after ben uh imparts his wisdom onto karen we do get another scene with claire in hands of the russians uh they they take her back to their base of operation and meanwhile matt still high on the chase finds himself in the apartment with santino and they have a discussion so that he can figure out just exactly where claire is i just want to say right off the bat matt spanish is pretty good i didn't know that he had it in him 
I thought that was cool. Yeah, like he's it's he's obviously very intelligent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I do want to say this though. When, you know, I mentioned the point about how we have that line about apply enough pressure and eventually they'll break. Uh, I'd like that this is another example of that, and I love that when Matt said it he was in no way thinking about how it would be applied to him. But as we've seen so far in this episode, they're really throwing that line back in his face. Pair this back with the conversation with Claire, and we're really starting to see the rules develop even further for himself. I'm going to jump ahead here just slightly, where towards the end, there's a scene where Matt has this line of, I didn't think about how this would impact others. Mm -hmm. And just just to play off that that pressure being applied to him, you know, that's... I mean, clearly, that's how they're applying that pressure on him, like through other people. I mean, because you saw how distraught Santino was. He's like, I'm sorry. It's it's my fault. I broke. You know, they they were threatening to hurt my family if I didn't give him the information. And, and he just felt so guilty. You got to imagine that kid's with a high schooler. In the past few days, he has helped carry a person out of a dumpster, then carry somebody up flights of stairs to a roof, um, and then have somebody show up. Uh, and beat him for information. He's had a rough couple of days. Not to mention probably all the homework he's got. <laughs> <laughs> Juggling that and this vigilante stuff. Uh, poor Santino is basically, I, I felt so bad for him. Yes, very much so. After Matt gets that information out of Santino, we do find ourselves back with Wilson and Vanessa on their date. Uh, the two are getting to know each other, and we get a closer look at Fisk and his motivations. Uh, you know, we learn that Fisk dreamed about living far away, and then once he was kind of shipped off far away, he had this forelonging sense of Hell's Kitchen and how he wanted to make it a better place. One of the things I found interesting about this is he's being built up as this big, powerful man. And maybe it's just my perception. But when he goes to choose the wine and then says, well, no, it's Wesley, you know, he's the one that recommended it. For some reason, I, yeah, I had it in my head. Like there's a sense of sophistication that he has and like. They're using him choosing the right wine to kind of express that. And then it's just another example of this vulnerability that he's like, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going off of Wesley's recommendation. Um, and then, it, you know, they show that it doesn't seem like he has much of a sense of humor because he didn't really take her joke very well. No, not at all. You could see how much his ego is hurt. Because, I mean, she, she has to immediately defend it. She's like, not a good, ju- not a good joke, I, I imagine. I, I just- because I mean my notes start off with saying more clunky and awkward Fisk and I think on paper I really do love the idea of getting to know our character by seeing them going on a first date I mean because it's an interesting way to kind of see what makes them tick what their motivations are and I guess maybe it's just either the the conversation or the delivery it just feels so unnatural like it doesn't feel like a, a real conversation to me and I think that's what makes me like conflicted about the efficacy of Wilson's awkwardness. You know what? That that this awkwardness of the date has really, really got you thinking, um, or like focused in on that. Because what I really expected you to say, or to to, to bring up, um, she Vanessa asks or says something like, "You don't do this often." And his line, something to the effect, she says something to the effect of that. And then his line is, I've been preoccupied for a long time. And as he's saying that, they start with a close-up of that cufflink and him rubbing it with his hand. And yeah. as much as you brought up the cufflink with the last episode, I figured you would have like really focused in on that. Uh, but this awkwardness is really <laughs> kind of got your attention. I don't know what it is, man. I, it's, I don't know. Maybe... 
don't know. Maybe it speaks more about me than anything. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, so, the, the I, I did I I did see the scene where he starts fiddling with his cufflink, and it almost feels like it's a nervous habit for him. And I really, again, I don't remember, but I really do want to see if we get some more light shed on what these cufflinks mean to him. It has to have something, and I'm sure it does. And I just honestly don't remember, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not holding back of like, oh, I no, I honestly, it's been a while since I've seen them all, and this yeah. is an L, this is that little detail that I'm not not remembering. Um, you know what I do? What I do find interesting is they he does get across his love for the city, yeah. um, and I do want to note that because you do, you know, he's trying to improve it. Uh, he loves the city. We had a whole episode, you know, with Karen and Foggy talking about how much they love the city, you know, so you, you do get a sense that he does or he is doing what he's doing because he he believes it's right. Yeah, I mean, he genuinely does care for his city. And to two things I want to point out here is me jumping ahead a little bit. You know, we kind of get that same feeling from Matt as well. I mean, Matt lists how he genuinely wants to make his city a better place. For example, uh, last episode when he was beating up on that guy who had the leverage on the juror, he was like, I don't want to see you in my city again. Like he takes ownership of where he lives. And it's very cool that we get to see this contrast between the two of them, how they have similar goals. It's obviously they're just going about it in different ways. And then the second point when I bring up, I, I don't think... And because I'm making uh, a, a reference to the MCU proper here, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Thanos is probably one of the more successful villains in the MCU proper. And I like that he was grounded in that same belief of like, he's genuinely under the impression that he's doing good. Like he wants to do, he wants to make the world a better place. And I find it interesting that Fisk, another really highly renowned villain in the MCU, uh, has similar grounding as a as a villain. Yeah, and I thought of um, T'Challa and Eric Killmonger, uh, yep. where they both had this, you know, true sense of I want to do what's right, um, and by different means. So after the dating scene with Wilson and Vanessa, we do find ourselves back with Claire, who is incredibly beaten up and bloodied. She's being interrogated because the Russians are trying to find out the identity of the man in the black mask, and of course she is not giving it up. And right before. Before things get too out of hand, he does arrive and single-handedly incapacitates all the Russians. We start the scene with this empty frame, a bloodied face. Claire falls into it, right? And, it, and it's a very jarring moment for when I was watching it. Uh, and then we proceed with the torture, the beating. Um, and, and honestly, if I think back, a lot of it seemed implied because he hit the car window with a bat you get this sense of fear, but I don't. Yeah, we never. I think back, we never actually. I don't know if you actually go ahead. I don't. Basically, I don't think you actually see it. No, you don't see any actual physical violence towards Claire, as far as I'm concerned. She's definitely bloodied up and bruised, and they have that intimidation scene with the bat. But as far as I remember, no, they don't actually lay a hand on her. But God, dude, that scream that she had was brutal when they when they broke the window by her head. That. Regardless of where we go from here, that's some amazing acting on, I just lost her name. I had it. Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson. That's some amazing acting on Rosario Dawson's part. Yes. Yes. Well, and again, I, as just all the way through, because now that I, you're right, now that I think about it, like I just kept focusing in on just, man, just they're really, 
like this is brutal. Like she just is taking a beating, but it's more like she took a beating. I don't, man, I don't know if they showed it. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, maybe it helps answer that question is it's not that graphic gratuitous question. Yeah. It definitely would have been clear cut gratuitous if they would have been showing it, but they did have some restraint in that regard. I think the thing that I like about this scene the most, and it's something that we've already kind of distinguished between in the first episode, is that this show is so good at giving us two different modes of Daredevil. You know, we have scenes like that hallway scene where we have the perspective of the fight from him and we get to feel the weight of the fight. And then we have scenes like this one where it's from the perspective of the criminals and it's truly haunting. Like the way that he's just this force that is unstoppable compared to them. Oh, the, the laugh from Claire, I think, added to that. The lights go out. You know, she knows what's about to happen. She figures it out. And that laugh she gives out um, and said, why don't you ask him yourself? You know, and then you get the, he goes through them fairly quick. I found it interesting how they ended it. She's taken at gunpoint and Daredevil makes that threat. But the the threat was interesting because the threat was to basically, you need to drop the gun or I'm going to break your hand, which I think pushes along that narrative. You're talking about the no death code, right? It wasn't like you need to drop the gun or you'll be sorry or anything. It was very specific. I'm going to break the hand. Not, I'm going to kill you or anything like that. Yeah, that's a good catch. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, Claire gets, and and I'm conflicted on this, Claire gets some kind of redemption. She's the one that gets to, to kind of do the final hit with the baseball bat. Um, and I I don't know, I go back and forth because they end that where they they clearly in this, they embrace, right? Because they know each other. And then she kind of breaks down and cries. Um, and again, like I said, this kind of colored how I saw the rest of it. Because uh, my note just, you know, um, they embrace. She cries. Um, feel like I can't make my own handwriting. Basically, I, I wrote down says, it feels like they gave her that to kind of make up. Like show creators gave her that moment to kind of like we need to make up for what we put her through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also kind of wrote down, yeah, but that moment of the embrace, uh, and her breaking down, it was like, yep, right there. They put her in the fridge, yeah. you know, and, and that was kind of that final like, ceiling of it for me. It's like wanting to have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. Like they, their recognition of what they're doing, but they thought they could nullify it by giving her that moment at the end. Right. And I'm, I'm glad she got that moment, but yeah, you know, it, it was hard for me not to see it in another way. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely appreciate that that perspective that you're bringing to it. Um, I mean, for me, I, honestly, it just that scene broke my heart. Like, uh, you know, we know Claire is like this medical professional. She's she's taken this oath to care for people, and even though these truly heinous acts have been done to her, it it, it takes a lot to get to that point where you openly take a bat to somebody's face, and then to see that immediate effect that it has on her, it's just like it. I don't know. It, it broke me a little bit to see to see her go through all that. Well, and you get the continuing transition. Like you've already brought it up, and we'll talk about it again in just a little bit. So I'm just kind of a tease, but where she starts urging him on, you got to continue. Um, and and I have to imagine this experience maybe reinforce that thought of you need to be doing this. Last little note that I I want to put out here 
is I found it interesting in that scene where the, the Russian brothers visit Simon in the hospital and the information that they're able to get out of him is just simply the devil. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't want to trivialize torture, but I will say I don't I never took anything happening in that scene as somebody who would would resort to like the supernatural like, oh, the devil, the devil did this kind of thing. To me, Matt really earned the name devil in this scene, the way that they did it all haunting and, and making him larger than life. Uh, it's it's very clear to see why Simon referred to him as the devil. Right, right. I, no, I think that's a really good point. After that scene, uh, we do find ourselves once again with Karen and Ben as they reconvene at the diner that they were at previously. Karen's kind of like pushing Ben to be like, hey, I thought you didn't want to be in on this. And he starts to lay the ground rules for how he will find himself involved in this, but they have to be careful. Yeah, we learn a little bit about Ben here, you know, because Karen starts asking, what about... Well, no, she doesn't start asking. Ben starts telling her about what happened to the people that gave him the tips. And the last one, um, I think the VA hospital, he asked, well, what happened to that person? And, you know, he, it was clearly implied that was his wife, you know, yeah. and, and, and it was also, you know, with that line, you know, she married, but suffered the worst fate. She married beneath her, um, and you can tell that like he has this remorse of, or, or this, you know, uh, this guilt that like the, the, his wife is in that situation she's in because she's with me. It's a very self deprecating view and a, a nice insight onto who he is as a person. And, and, and to kind of play on what you were saying about how the way he's listing um, the different ways that the people he got sources from f- suffered pretty terrible fates. You know, I, we get that further sense of why Ben is trying to keep Karen at bay. Um, you know, he does have an enthusiasm for getting the truth, but he 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 does understand that there are risks involved. Right. Now, I want to shift gears just a little bit and ask you, have you ever been to one of those auctions like Karen was at? I have not. Okay, neither have I. And I'm just for the time and the setting of when this takes place, it just seems that like that auction either took a very long time because it's at night or it was a weird time to have an auction late in the evening. <laughs> like I, I, I don't know when auctions normally take place, but, right. but, but that setting just, just really just struck me as odd. <laughs> Maybe it was just Karen was just like freaking out, wondering where she was going to get the money for for the stuff she had bought. Yeah, you know, just like it's nighttime. <laughs> you just finished the auction. Like he he had to been sitting in the diner for a while. <laughs> it's not his first plate of pancakes that he's had that night. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, I, I joke about that, but actually, you know, I'm totally aware of that old trope about how like. You know, sometimes the curtains are just blue. There's no meaning to be derived from it. But I really enjoyed that in this first diner scene that we had where Ben is standoffish. He doesn't want to be a part of it. He only drinks a cup of coffee. But then when we get the second scene where he does finally say, "Okay, I'm in, he's got himself like a full meal. I I thought that was just a cool visual representation to show his shift in decision making. Right. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the the catch of Wesley in the glasses. It's just a little bit mm-hmm. more. He's more comfortable, more casual. Um, yeah. I like. You know, it's interesting that we are gravitating towards Ben and Wesley, as you mentioned, because um, they're both very principled people. You know, now they clearly have 
very different principles that they, you know, try to uphold. Uh, but they're very, you know, clearly principled, know what they're doing kind of people. You know, or, or well, it's more thought through than Daredevil. You know, in in, in terms of you know what, what we brought up about what is your end game. I guess they're more defined in their experience. They're they're people who have been at it long enough to know who they are and therefore what they represent is less wild, I would say. I don't know if that's a great way mm-hmm. to characterize Daredevil, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, wild or you even mentioned he seems like uh was it last episode, last podcast episode? Um no, last podcast episode of Rabbit in a Snowstorm. You mentioned in the the one where where he threw him over the roof, um, where he just seems to be a little bit, especially in the no death clause, very haphazard with some of the yeah. stuff he's doing. Mm-hmm. After we get that scene in the diner, we are back with Vladimir and Anatoly as they arrive back at their operations just to discover all the damage that Daredevil has caused. Anatoly receives word that Fisk has been spotted out in the open. He insists that him and his brother go make a deal, but Vladimir refuses. Anatoly goes alone. Meanwhile, Fisk and Vanessa are discussing dessert, but are interrupted by Anatoly arriving. There's a quick moment there between the brothers where Anatoly says, you know, I'm going to go ash for the deal. Vladimir, I will not bow before that man. And Anatoly, then I will go and bow for both of us. Um, And then Vladimir says, go make the deal. I mean, you can tell that they're, as we mentioned before, they're not on the same page, trying to get on the same page. You know, you have a small interaction and small play between the brothers, you know, um, in in terms of their character development and and that's that quick bit. Mm -hmm. I will say this, though, because I believe you've alluded to it already before. I will allude to it now. I think Anatoly should have chose his words a little bit better. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling he's going to regret saying I will bow for the both of us come before the episode ends. <laughs> you know, I I do once we once they have their little exchange back and forth about the going to make the deal, we do have ourselves with Vanessa and Fisk and they're having a conversation where Fisk says something to the line of, you know, we get caught up in what we're doing, who we think we are. I like that this prefaces the scene of Anatoly interrupting their dinner. Uh, continuing that thread of just how vulnerable Wilson is, I think he truly dropped all his defense here. Like he was being as open as he possibly could with Vanessa. And I do think that he forgot who he thought he was before reality comes crashing and Anatoly burst in. Oh, completely. Cause mm-hmm. it, well, was, as he says that line, um, I didn't even know, write this down, but I just remember it. There was a slow camera push in and then, Vanessa asked the question, who are you? You know, and so you could tell this is like a real poignant moment. Like we're going to get some insight. And his response is, you know, tonight I'm just a man. Uh, Well, he goes on with the date part uh, with a beautiful woman. But for me, the more important part tonight, I'm just a man. Uh, And as you mentioned before, we've already had that line of Vladimir saying, you know, the reason why you don't want him to say the name is because then he is just a man. Um, And so tonight, I'm just a man. So I thought it was a good, and right there is where he get interrupted. But even the start of that scene where he offers the Zupa Iglesia, 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 the Zupa. Iglesia. We'll go with that. Yeah. Like, and her first crack back at him was that, isn't that served at children's birthday parties? You know, and, and 
to me, it was kind of a weirdly veiled shot of like, that's, you're kind of childlike, uh, you know? So I thought that was also a little interesting tidbit on the Fisk character, um, of that being the favorite dessert. Mm-hmm. That's a good catch. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't quite put that together or the, I'm just a man. So yeah, I, that's, that's cool for pointing that out. Well, yeah. Cause I mean, you mentioned like sometimes is there not, um, you know, is there not any meaning and we're just, you know, deriving some meaning in it, but that is the second reference to this episode to his childhood, you know, through this date. Um, and so that's, that's part of why I thought it was significant of kind of that call into the childhood, you know, where he was away from the city for those years. Uh, so there were good years and, and, and now through the, through the dessert. Yeah. It, 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 it's a great way to show the building rage that we know is coming. Now, one of the things I've, I I didn't mention in the last scene of the date, intentionally, I saved it for now. One of the things I noticed, they said it's a new restaurant. And I was like, oh, it's a new restaurant. It's awfully full for a new restaurant. And then when Anatoly comes crashing in, that reality you said it comes crashing, you very quickly see that the majority of those people in there are Fisk's people. Yeah. You know, and, and I had two thoughts that, hey, wow, like he had the place locked down and B the way they showed it, it looked like they were with people having dinner. And so like, I'm just imagining like, if I put myself in that world, like, yeah, honey, we're going to go out to this new Italian restaurant and then duty calls and you're left there with your date or wife sitting there. Um, you know, cause it looked like normal people for the most part. Mm-hmm. It, you know what? It almost kind of harkens back to, that scene in the Avengers when Natasha is sent to recruit Banner and she's like, no, 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 it's just me. And then when Banner does that fake out about raging out and the scene pulls out and you see all the agents outside mm-hmm. the building, mm-hmm. a very similar feel. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, and honestly, that wasn't something that I caught until the third rewatch. Cause like it all happened so quickly, but then once you, once you catch on to the way that they all stand up and are part of his posse, it's like, Oh Wow the yeah. the the mirage comes shattering yeah and the honestly the only less note i have left of this scene is just that quick interchange as they're getting away you know fist says put him in the car wesley says understood and then i have a note anatoly's a dead man <laughs> yeah the venom in right. fisk's voice was palpable yes so after the dinner gets interrupted, we do find ourselves back in the Nelson and Murdoch offices. Karen has just arrived and she is discussing with Foggy all the purchases that she has made. And she's kind of begging for forgiveness, but we see that it has a very different effect on Foggy. Right. And well, as quick as seen as this is, and I didn't really think much about it. And, you know, you you brought it up nicely of there's a payoff, right? The, the only other scene we have with Foggy, you know, he brings up. He's telling the story about wanting mom wanting him to become a butcher. He's man, I want fax machines and elevators and and all that that comes along with big law firm, you know. And so there's a nice little payoff there that it's fax machines that Karen ends up buying from that auction. Yeah, I mean it's such a serendipitous effect that it has on Foggy, and I mean because I mean they they really are questioning their decisions up until that point of whether or not they made the right move to start their own practice. And I mean, even, and even think about it this way, this kind of popped in my head. So it might not be fully formed. You know, they're questioning if they're doing the right thing. What's the first case that they took on? It was bringing in Karen. And then 
Karen brings in these office supplies. And I just thought it was a nice little way to kind of keep them going on their moral compass. It is. And they do. And I think it was a good way to include Foggy in this episode. Because, I mean, you think about Mm -hmm. it, that's all we've seen of Foggy. Um, You know, where Karen had a lot of scenes with Ben, uh, you know, Claire. But you don't get much of Foggy. But it was but it actually was short, but actually but added something to him and, and who he is and what and what he wants out of life and what he's and what they're doing. Which to play off that, we're our next scene features Matt and Claire, which in a stunning turn of events is a role reversal. Matt is tending to Claire's wounds and they begin to open up a lot more uh, to the point that Matt reveals his name. Yeah. So you mentioned that Matt gives his name. I mean, this is a full reveal, right? Not just his name, but they're in his apartment. Um, and this is where we've alluded to it a couple of times now where Claire is in the position of convincing Matt that, yes, you are doing the right thing and being a vigilante. Almost definitely. Um, I mean, because Matt, I mean, he straight up says nothing's changing out there. Matt is starting to, to feel like he what he's doing doesn't have any effect, kind of similar to Foggy. And I mean, it's showing it's easy to break when it feels like the things you're doing aren't make a difference. Um, I do find it interesting that in the beginning scene, the first scene that we get with Matt and Claire, Claire it kind of makes that suggestion like, well, hey, maybe the guy that gave you Fisk's name was lying. And Matt says, I would have known. And she goes, how? And he goes, heartbeat. And she kind of just like rolls her eyes and is like, okay, whatever. Not that she was skeptical of his power, but just kind of like, you know, just throwing it away. And the way that she kind of reinforces how much she believes in what he's doing is a callback to that heartbeat. She's like, feel my heartbeat. And she's like, you are making a difference. You know, you have to keep on doing this, but you have to be smart about the way that you're doing it. Yeah, they did a good job of starting the episode. I mean, I realize there's another scene, but at least with their story, right, of starting the episode and just mirroring that end um, with this scene. You know, we're at in Claire's place. Now we're in Matt's place. Matt's getting, you know, uh, patched up. Now Claire's getting patched up. Uh, the heartbeat, as you just mentioned, on on either side. It was. It's a nice bookend for this, uh, for their story for this episode. And I mean, we've we've kind of discussed this throughout because we've kind of been peeking ahead a little bit. But I just want to I just want to hammer the point home a little bit more. You know, this is Matt's guilt finally coming to a head. Um, and I, I think it's an incredible contrast from the beginning with the I'll live line to where he's now realizing the effects that his actions are having on the people that he's roping in on this. And it's it's great work that they're doing, that they're contrasting both Matt and Fisk, who are these people that just want to make their city a better place. And I like that we have Claire in Matt's corner being like, OK, well, that's good. But how are you going to do it? You need to have more a more realistic approach to this. Right. What's your end game? So I, I thought that was uh, a point to just hammer home as we move into the next place, which does find us at the conclusion of Fisk and Vanessa's date. They're standing outside of their apartment. Uh, they're kind of reassessing how the date went. And Vanessa is unsure about how she feels about who Fisk is and everything that happened in the restaurant. Okay. I'm going to start with a question for you. Okay. If the date didn't end the way it ended, right? Let's say Anatoly doesn't barge in, you know, and he's a little bit more diplomatic. Do you think Fisk kills Anatoly? Oh, dang. That's a... Uh... My initial inclination is to say no, but I'm peeking ahead a little bit here uh, without getting into the deals of what happened. 
at the end of the scene, Fisk basically tips his hand that he's counting on the fallout effects of what happens when he kills Anatoly. So Right, right. And that seems planned. And and so that's why, you know, I, I kind of questioned would he have done it anyways. But that that's a good that's a good call. I maybe the difference is I think Anatoly was always going to die, but the manner in which he dies is different because of the, the the outlash that Fisk has because Anatoly barged in on his date. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because it, it almost, um, and I know we haven't laid out the details yet, so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, tread lightly, but it's almost, we had two references during the date to his childhood and it comes across as him throwing a tantrum. Mm-hmm you know, as a, as a child would. I mean, really, I mean, cause it seems like we're kind of like tiptoeing towards that scene. I'll just say really the only note that I have, uh, cause we already iterated it. I, I said, it feels very high school, the conversation that they're having back and forth, but for all of my back and forth qualms about the awkwardness, I will say it's incredible acting on, and I always get his name pronounced wrong. So I'm going to try it. Vincent Donofrio. Uh, I'll take it. Okay, it's great acting on his part because there's a right at the tail end of that scene where she's like, I don't know how I feel. He has like this subtle quiver to his lips and you can just see how truly distraught he is. And I liked it. Yeah. Now, I, I have to reveal, as I'm watching this episode in a note-taking mindset, I had that question in the back of my mind that we started with. Is the violence gratuitous? Um, and we've had such a buildup to Fisk of him being someone to fear that they had to do something. I, I feel like they had to go that far because, because we've, I mean, after this one guy gets his head bashed in with a bowling alley, then impales himself at the end of the episode. What, you know, you got to do something to say, this is someone to be feared that you're going to impale yourself, mm-hmm. you know? And so in some ways I, I, I feel like they, it's not necessarily gratuitous. It's they had to, to give an audience a reason that someone would do that to themselves. Yeah. It definitely has purpose. So, uh, just, just to describe that final scene, uh, after Fisk is visibly hurt from Vanessa, we find ourselves with Anatoly and Wesley in a vehicle as they're discussing exactly what happened back at the base where the man in the black mask took them down. Anatoly discusses that he wants to put the past behind them and work together. But of course, Wesley waxes poetically about the past and how it's never truly erased. Uh, he gets a phone call confirming which side of the vehicle Anatoly is on. And unfortunately for Anatoly, he was not wearing a seatbelt and Fisk uh, quickly takes care of him. Yeah. Safety first. Safety right? first. Right? <laughs> completely different scene if he would have been wearing the seatbelt. <laughs> yeah. How do you uh, imagine? How, how would you do that? Hey, um, Sir, Anatoly, do you mind unbuckling first? <laughs> is that is that a basic movie trope? Because like I'm thinking of like The Dark Knight, and before Harvey Dent shoots the driver in the back of the head, he puts on a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't wearing seatbelts. Is that is that just a thing in movies that I just have never picked up on that they intentionally don't wear seatbelts? You know, it's kind of because don't they also like remove the headrest because it blocks the people in the back with the camera? It, it's I guess it's just one of those visual vocabulary things that we've grown to accept with movies. Yeah. And TV it, shows. Yeah. I think I think that has to be it. Mm-hmm. But no, I was going to say, I think having Wesley, you know, go on about the past was such a great encapsulation of Anatoly's story. 
Um, we obviously start with the dive back into their history, and then they have this reconciling over Simon's body in, in the in the hospital with you know how they're gonna put the past behind them and move forward and 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 move past being softened by this land of riches. And here's Wesley, the practical person, being like, you know, your past never really changes. It's 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 always there. Oh, yeah. And it's and so I like that you bring that up because you have that for, you know, Anatoly and Vladimir. We we mentioned how the episode is alluded to his past twice. Um, and so I think that also has a nice end of of ending for the Russians, but a foreshadowing for Fisk of his past is important. Yeah, I like that read a lot. And I mean, and to to continue on with um, showing how Fisk's childhood propels his actions forward, Fisk is absolutely terrifying in this scene. Um, you know, take away the fact, I mean, we talked about it, take away the fact that he decapitates Anatoly. He completely manhandles Anatoly in a way that shows Anatoly never had a chance in this fight. Right. Right, he never had a chance. Well, and in the comic, and and if you played, well, if you, if you, the listener, have, I know Trey has, uh, the PS4 Spider-Man game, and you start off with Kingpin, he is known that he's not, you know, he's not a fat man. He is a built man, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that is, that bulk is strength. Yep. And I, I'm, I made a comparison to it earlier with his, his motivations as a character, uh, to Thanos, I, I mean, the way that he handles Anatoly here kind of feels like the same way that Thanos handled Hulk in the beginning of Infinity War. It's just like oh, it's yeah. methodical and, and and done away with quickly. Yeah, I don't know why this popped into my head. The Ben uh, incarnation of Daredevil, uh, it was Michael Clark Duncan that played Kingpin. You know, oh, another wow. bit. Yeah, so another big muscular guy to kind of show that aspect of that character again just to kind of play off how they've been building this anxiety and awkwardness the it it really services the rage that we get here towards the end right so what uh what are your overarching concluding thoughts on this episode just to kind of finally round out that scene i do want to add this in real quick uh wesley again is the true mvp of this episode uh, he's the kind of right-hand man who will suffer getting blood splattered on his face, but will still offer his boss a clean towel before wiping his own. <laughs> has there been an episode that he has not been the MVP? I no, I don't think so. Wesley, not for us. We really should. <laughs> you know, that'd be fun to start awarding who the MVP of the episode is and keep track of it as we continue on. That's it. I'm down. I just wrote it. Wesley MVP. All right, go. we're gonna. I, we need a. We need to listen back to the previous one, see if we can derive who our MVP would have been and keep track going forward. But regarding my thoughts overall, I think it's been pretty clear how much or how uncomfortable the Fisk stuff was for me. It just felt like a very uneven episode. I do like that it starts off as this, you know, oh, I'm Daredevil. All I have to do is apply pressure and I'll get what I want. But I like that they flip that on its head and we see throughout the entirety of the episode that the pressure is actually being applied to him unknowingly. And I thought that was kind of a cool way to do it. Although, as you said, with the trope of the the women in the refrigerator, um, that kind of makes it uneven as well. For me, I think they did a good job with the Russians and Fisk and kind of showing, you know, because this is the first time we really get to see him as crime boss, 
towards the very end, those really brief scenes about wanting to make a deal with the Russians. Otherwise, it's all been very vulnerable and with Vanessa. So I liked that that uh, those aspects of this episode, you know, this mm-hmm. this character building for Fisk and character building around that criminal world. Uh, it's a daredevil. You have to have daredevil in the episode, I guess, you know, um, and I and I get the character that they built with that story. I'm just n- now watching it. I kind of wish they would have had a different way to do it. You know, like, honestly, you probably could have taken that as- aspect out and be just watch the fish Russian scenes and the Ben and Karen scenes and true. And I would have enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I didn't enjoy the episode this time, but like, I don't think I would have thought, Oh, this, you know, I wish the daredevil would have been in it. I, I would have enjoyed seeing just those characters. I can see that, but that will do it for our discussion of season one, episode four in the blood. Uh, and of course, as you know, by now we do like to end with a, question for you all to chime in on our social media so with that being said jude if you could bring back any villain in the mcu proper who would it be wow i know who my first answer was when you texted me that question i think we both were under the impression that our our answers are going to be the same and we intentionally decided not to reveal it so that we could have a live telling of it here yeah, but then the first one that popped into my head was something different. Really? Because I have the, three. The, okay, so I, the one, so I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do the one that I thought you would have that I have, um, and then second is the one that just popped into my head this time. Okay. Okay. So the first one was Justin Hammer, and the second one was uh, Claw. So no. I'm actually really surprised, but those are actually good answers. Uh, I really would love to see Justin Hammer. Although, and this could be my own uh, ignorance referring, regarding the comics, I don't know if you can still have Justin Hammer around without Tony Stark. Like, that's actually uh, a direct question. I, I think you can. Like, I think, you can? The, I think the way the MCU is, you can still make that work. Okay. Right. Like, like I could see, well... It depends on how you want to run some storylines and how much retconning-ish we would let them do and forgive, right? So in Iron Man 3, you had AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. I could see a way where you could bring back Justin Hammer and and maybe some kind of relationship with AIM and bringing that back, you know? And we could still make that work as hammers trying to fill the technological void that that stark is leaving you know mm-hmm. um, even if it's a bit part and he is like outfitting tech for other villains uh so to speak but i just i love the actor you know and i just love how yeah. he played that character and I, and I love the actor sam rockwell in almost everything he's in so i would love just to see more of him yeah know? any and excuse to get him back is, Oh yeah, and then Claw is such a. I was shocked when they killed him. You know, and yeah. I was like, "Wow, you." So unceremoniously too. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so who are yours? Because I thought for sure, for some reason, we'd be on the same. I will say, honorable mention definitely would have been Justin Hammer, but that that's not who I thought you thought I was getting. I thought you were under the impression that I wanted Killmonger back, who I would love to see him back. Um because I think he is one of the villains that even though his methods 
obviously were not right. His idea was right, and he even got T'Challa to change his ways. So it'd be interesting to see him still around and what effect that he would be having in the universe as this kind of villain that has lingered. But that's not my number one. Honestly, who I would like to see return to the MCU would be Ultron. I really enjoy the idea of Ultron and to see him kind of be this persistent villain that kind of rises to, to kind of give the Avengers more problems just seems really interesting to me. Yeah, I I wouldn't be opposed to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like I maybe have to go rewatch it again. I feel like they tried to make sure with dialogue or whatever that they kind of closed that door, you know? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you almost kind of had to, otherwise there's no way you could end that movie, right? If he, mm-hmm. if he is consciously escaped through the internet or something. Ultron in the comic was actually a creation of Hank Pym, not... Uh, Tony Stark. I mean, he did create Vision just in the comic, um, but he gave them fits, you know, in in that similar way. It wasn't as as quite as easy to get rid of as not that it was easy. It took the whole Avengers, you know, to get rid of him in, in the MCU. But in the comic, there they had ways to bring him back, and I'm sure they could find ways to do it here. Oh yeah, they most definitely they could if they wanted to. And and just to round it off, my third person would have been, and this is more so because I like the actor. Um, I mean, the character was fine, but uh, Obadiah Stane. I think it would have been it would have been cool to see him stick around a little bit longer. But kind of similar point with Justin Hammer. I don't know if that's a character you can keep around now that Tony Stark has exited the MCU. Right, and this is interesting because especially early on, Phase One, and I'm sure we'll address this at some point. They. They weren't shy about here's our bad here's our big bad and we're gonna kill him in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't till later that, you know, I think with Loki where villains started not just spilling over to other movies but surviving. Yeah, yeah. Obadiah Stane definitely was their precedent that they set to do away with the villain early on, and um, as you said, we definitely see it change moving forward. But yeah, if you'd like to chime in with who you would like to see villain-wise back into the MCU, uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, by adding us at MCU Need to Know on Twitter or tagging us on Instagram at MCU Need to Know as well. Or you can write to us at MCU Need to Know at gmail.com, whether it's comments regarding this question or if you'd like to chime in with the episode itself. And of course, we'd appreciate the help by leaving a rating on whatever... Uh, platform you're listening to this podcast and because that surely will help us out in growing an audience and the best way is to share with your friends yeah and again thank you so much for doing this with me jude absolutely can't wait till next week see you all next week So, so I, I was going to say, this next scene starts with, okay, so I'll get to start again, sorry. This next scene starts with that, damn it.
I'm trying. Um, no, you're good. You're good. You got it. Okay, so this next scene, really, I, I found it interesting because it started with this jarring cut to a beaten Claire fallen. So, like, the camera's on the ground, are a really low angle. I can't remember which, but and Claire just falls to the ground and she's clearly beaten, right? And so it was such a jarring transition. But, like, that starts the scene. And then from there, we get we get basically get to see Claire and uh, Karen. Damn it. Last try, then you got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got this. You got it. Okay. So in this next scene, we're back with Claire, and it starts with this low-angle camera-on-the-ground cut of, you know, you, you basically frame is clear. Karen, damn it, it's not Karen. <laughs> you want me to do it, or one more shot? Let me have... I'm trying to to break it up for you, and so you know what I mean. Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. So after the dating scene, we find ourselves back with Claire, who is incredibly beaten up and bloodied. Uh, she's being interrogated to reveal the man of the blast. Hey, there's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, dang! All right. 